Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast. With your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy Ryan Clark. Ryan, what's going on, man? Not much. What about you? Uh, not much at all. I mean, I'm excited. This is a, uh, you know, I feel like you're, we're doing like the, the the Vancouver car wash here for the podcast, where it's like people are coming into town, covering different teams, and I'm just like have, having them on the podcast and, and deep diving them. So I did one with Sean Shapiro recently right, on the yeah. Stars, your co-worker, and now you and I are going to talk about the apps today. I know. I mean, like, but here's the thing. Like, this is a hell of a place to go do a car wash through, because like, you look outside, and earlier today, it's you know, Pacific Northwest jury, which living in Seattle, I'm like, okay, I can live with this. Yep. And then now you look at the sun and it's like, I can live with this too. So like, you're in a pretty good spot if you're like, hi, come on through. Let's yeah. talk. Yeah. I'm just hanging out. I'm like, oh, while you're in town, let's, uh, let's enjoy the beautiful scenery. Let's talk a bit about hockey and oh, yeah. have some fun. So, I mean, I'm excited about this because I actually don't think I, this is episode 324 of the podcast. I've, wow. you know, a lot of it is a national podcast. So like generally we're like bouncing around from team to team, but I do like to, really kind of familiarize myself with individual teams, do deep dives. And I don't think I've done an Avs deep dive on this podcast yet in its history. And, you know, part of that was when it started. It was like the end of the Patrick Waugh days. And it was sure. Like, uh, the team was a bit of a joke. And then they were the worst team in the league in the first year under Jared Bednar. But, you know, recently I, I've, been, I've been focusing on them during the playoffs and stuff, but no, like, individual show where it was just, like, from start to finish, pure avalanche talk. So I'm excited to do this. Man, no pressure. So thanks for building that yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, no pressure at all. No, it's, it's, it might, it's the first. Who knows? It might be the last. We'll see. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure this team's going to give us plenty to talk about because, I mean, they've been keeping you busy and, and – uh, they're really fun to watch. I mean, they certainly are, just because kind of your point about where they were 2016-17, yep. they have the worst record in the salary cap era, and people are looking at Joe Sackett going, what are you going to do with this? And then here you go three years later, and everyone's looking at this team going, A, could they really challenge for something serious this year? And B, how did they get there? And I know it's easy to say, well, hit on first-round picks, but like we were saying in Edmonton last night, if hitting on first-round picks were easy, I mean, that's a franchise that – you know, it would have been able to hit on all the different guys that it's come through. But when you look at it, the two big ones, of course, were 
Hall and some guy named Connor McDavid. Yeah, I mean, and, and, yeah. And, yeah, exactly. And Nugent Hopkins has had a good career, but you know, people wouldn't say he's become what you would expect of a number one. But right. when you think of the guys that have come through, like Sam Ganes, you know, Pujarvi, yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, Yakupov, Nala Yakupov yeah. being yeah. another one. I mean, it's just proof that you can have all these plans, but it doesn't mean it'll work. No, of course, yeah, it's it's a team sport. You have to hit on a bunch of other things, and that's what that's what's so interesting to me about this Avs team. And we can talk about McKinnon and McCarr here and individual players in a second. Sure. But I guess while we're talking about this sort of team building component of it what really interests me about the Avs is you know we go from what 2016-17 was Bednar's first year where they had yes. like 48 points or something like that yeah I know 48 points 50. yeah so it's funny to me how and and clearly I mean it goes without saying you win games you have success people start writing good stories about you I think the perception changes but it's like you know for them to um clearly have a vision they put Bednar in front of this team that isn't going anywhere that season and they kind of take their lumps they take their losses pretty much every night they have a historically bad season um they stick with the coach uh i know like myself i during the start of joe sackett's career uh, tenure uh running the team i remember being kind of like ah, just because he was a former player and he's an abs legend is he qualified right. to be running this team you know some of the early returns were highly up and down and suspect and i think the questions were fair and now i think you know the general perception of the avalanche is that they're probably like one of the top handful like premier like well run from top to bottom organizationally all pushing and pulling in the right in the same direction and just crazy like how quickly that script has sort of flipped for this for this organization no it has and i mean and just from talking to different people in the organization dimitri everyone is very clear about saying hey it starts and ends with joe sackick and it doesn't come from like this place of hey they're trying to say nice things about their boss it's like literally not that i've tried to ask but like people will not say anything bad about joe sackick but the way it works you gotta give them a couple beers first and then they'll and they'll open up <laughs> Seeing as how I've never had a beer, I'm probably <laughs> the worst person to do that with. But but I think with Joe Sackick, and I mean, just talking whether it be with his assistant, general managers, people in development, the scouting aspect, they've all said what it started off with was it was setting a criteria for players they want. They want guys who are, of course, fast, that are skilled, um, that have hockey sense and intelligence. Right. And I mean, if they have a two-way ability, that only amplifies it. And so it's just a matter of like looking at who fits those needs. And not only that, but just like you know what sort of package do they come in i mean you look at this team you have you know smaller skaters medium-sized skaters yep. then you have larger players like you know miko rontanen and nikita zadorov who you know again they're six four and six five respectively yeah. and then they've been able to find guys like ryan graves who came over to chris bigra trade and now he is someone who's playing you know top four minutes with kale mccarr he's on the pk yep. and that's really just what it's been it's just been resetting their strategy and trying to find people who fit within that and right now it looks like it's going to plan but again it's like anything we won't know the full answer until it's all completed yeah absolutely although the first i guess inklings of the first signs are that you know they are headed in the right direction and we're going to talk more about that but let's let's talk about nathan mckinnon I'm who's excited. that i'm joking I'm, I'm excited to do this so you know what it's interesting this abs team they start off the year red hot they're scoring a ton of goals then they kind of go through this stretch right now where, you know, they don't have Rantanen, they don't have Landis Cog, uh, Zadorov's out, Colin Wilson's out. Like, they have a bunch of injuries, and they're sort of, I think, in the mode of kind of braving the storm a little bit. They're kind of just, like, trying to hang on until they That's get healthy and they say. get those pieces <laughs> back, right? And and we saw, you know, we're recording this on a Friday uh, early evening last night. They, you know, they got a front row seat for the Connor McDavid show. They really took – Edmonton took him for a ride there for a little bit, and, and they looked like a tired, thin team that was uh, playing on the road, but – with McKinnon, 
um, there's so many directions that I'd, I'd like to take this, but I guess, you know, this conversation of like, who's the best player in the world. And I think, I don't know, you follow him closely. So I, I'm sure you're kind of a bit partial to McKinnon. I, I, I still do still think it's McDavid. And I think, oh, he kind no, of, it like, is. It he, definitely he kind of reminded us of that a little bit, um, in that head to head. And, you know, we don't typically see too much like mono a mono in hockey. It's not as, as much as like basketball, for example, but, um, I think that was a pretty good reminder of, of, of what McDavid's capable of. But, you know, McKinnon's really taken this team and put them on his back. And I think people wanted to see that a little bit because the knock on him, especially in the MVP discussion over the past couple of years, was, well, yeah, he's got great numbers, but he's also playing with two amazing players in Randon and Landeskog, and how much of it is an individual effort. Sure. And now, he, I mean, the team is struggling a little bit, but he himself, I mean, you look at just the individual numbers in these seven or eight games without them, and, and they're through the roof. Like, he's doing it all for this Avalanche team. Well, I mean, let's go back to the year he finished runner-up to right. Taylor Hart. Excuse me, Taylor Hall in the Hart conversation. Taylor Hart, yeah, I like it. <laughs> Lord. But to be for real, I mean, you think about those games that he missed, and the Avalanche were struggling without him. And, you know, some people felt like, hey, look, when you look at the win-loss record with him in the lineup versus when he's injured, I mean, that should be a telling metric in the sense of how valuable he is to this team. But even when you look at last year when they went through that late playoff push to, to backdoor their way in. Right. I mean, this was a team that lost Gabriel Landeskog for an extended period, mm-hmm. Miko Rontanen for an extended period, and they were playing in with different players, and McKinnon was still getting points and still being productive. Yep. And I mean, and yeah, I mean, if he tried to get like, what, a thousand shots in San Jose to get 100, but he finished with 99. Yeah. Whereas if you look at this year, and it seems like with the initial forward depth they brought in before the injuries continue to mount, you look at what he was doing with those three, and they look like they were functioning well. But this season, to see him play with Matt Calvert and Jonas Donskoy, yep. that, that unit certainly struggled against the Oilers on Thursday yep. night. But when you look at what they did against Winnipeg, but really what they did against Nashville when they first played together, mm. it's a sequence of... McKinnon gets the puck, Calvert and Donskoy, they get to the net front, and whatever happens, happens. So if it's a high-low pass that leads to a defenseman taking a shot or McKinnon firing from wherever, you have two people there who can either A, redirect it, or B, get a rebound. And while that might sound simple, that hadn't always been the plan in place right. whenever Landeskog or Rontanen were hurt. And so you're seeing Nathan McKinnon not only drive a line when Landeskog and Rontanen are in the lineup, but when they're without the lineup, it's made clear this is the plan to make him involved, whether it's him launching sometimes five to ten shots, guys getting rebounds, him moving through traffic. It's clear it's his job to kind of orchestrate, and it's everyone else's to kind of read and react. Yeah, I mean, I actually wrote down the numbers here just because I did want to hammer it home. Eight games... You know, five goals and six assists. I mean, that, that's that's nothing out of the norm for him. I think the the fifty three shots on goal, seventy nine shots attempt shots attempted. Like, he's really taking it upon himself right now to like kind of will this team towards victory or or get the puck into the net. And um, he's had such a fascinating career arc for me because you know he's top prospect. He's getting all these kind of comparisons to Crosby because of where they played and where they right. came from. He's he's the number one overall pick in this loaded cl- draft class. And he comes in and, you know, he had an amazing rookie year as an 18-year-old, but then it took him a while. He'd struggled with some injuries. Um, you know, he really struggled as a, as a shooter in terms of converting his, his looks into goals. And um, the Avalanche, I guess, benefit from that a little bit because they buy low when his shooting percentage is low. They get him on the the most sweetheart team, team friendly, friendly deal, deal is making 6.3 million until 2023 now or whatever. And, and so they're going to be benefiting from that for years to come. But, um, you know, for him, I wonder if you've ever talked about this with him or, or if he's talked about it locally, I'm not sure, but I haven't seen anything. And, you know, maybe it's something about during his playing days, he's like too close to it. And maybe he'll reflect on it later on in his career or, or when he's done. But, 
just what happened there in terms of like what that adjustment was from age, whatever, 21, 22, when he kind of flipped that switch and became this player because uh, the talent was never in question. But I don't think it's as simple as like, oh, you know, he just started working harder or, or whatever. Like I, something fundamental must have changed for him to become from just like a good player to like top five player in the world right. like you don't you don't typically see that leap especially after 300 or so nhl games played you know it's interesting because we had a story kind of touching on that last year and tyson berry who's actually mckinnon's best friend made this really interesting point he said with nate it was taking his nutrition and other things like working out a lot more seriously <laughs> so he was like you know when we first came to the nhl together he was like you know nate would come on the team playing with you know pop and a bag of chips and you know it wasn't like he was being careless with what he ate whereas if now like you look at mckinnon and it's clear like he takes so such good care of his body to the point where it's like he walks in and it's like whatever self-esteem issues you think you don't have you do by staring at him (laughs) and you're like oh wow i actually lost 15 pounds this summer and i just gained it all back just looking at him but to be serious like I've heard quite a few people say like it was this change and this kind of dedication to fitness that has made him what he is. And so it's not even like just those things, but again, it's just being more regimented in those things. And I think the other thing too, that probably turned it around in a sense was you look at what he did in that world cup of hockey, which, Mm -hmm. you know, it's so fascinating to look at team North America. Cause I know before we went on air, we were joking about Chris Peters, but you know, he and I talk every day and, he was saying that Team North America for him ruined hockey because it's like we will never see anything quite like that again. Right. But you think about his performance in that tournament, the move against Lundquist in, in overtime, and that's really kind of like that first moment where you're like, wow, this guy could actually kind of carry this. And since then, we've seen more and more and more of that. So really it sounds like it's just kind of been from what everyone says, this idea that, you know, look, it took time for him to kind of be where he is. But it's also this commitment to fitness and commitment to other things because, you know, the thing about a guy like McKinnon, and I hope this isn't too ignorant of a thing to say, but like you look at the NHL and when it comes to development, there's no other league like it in the sense of like, if you are 18, 19 or 20 and you are picked in the top five and you're not like McDavid, Matthews, McKinnon, Eichel, Crosby, Ovechkin, good, there's all of a sudden this question of, well, what's gone wrong with your development? If you're a 21 year old in the NFL, yeah the NBA and Major League Baseball, there's this understanding. Right. You're a 21-year-old. Exactly. It's going to yeah. take time. Or like pretty much any other job in life. Well, like, yeah, exactly. You're a 21-year-old kid. You're still an idiot. Like, yeah, you'll figure this ex- out eventually. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what do you mean? You're 23 and you don't have all the answers yeah. yet? And it's like, he would be a grad student or like a senior if he right. was just a regular human being. But again, that's just kind of the thing about hockey is it's like it's a sport that sometimes we look at prospects and we think it's 16, 17, 18. We project at how they're going to be. But again, like – for every first rounder that doesn't work out, there's someone like an Andre Pilat who goes undrafted where you look at him now and it's like that guy is not only you know having a hell of a career, but he's getting paid really well while doing it for a franchise that just, again, you talk about drafting well and developing in Tampa. So again, you just never know. Well, it's so fascinating that you bring up that sort of off-the-ice work in terms of nutrition and, and, and training and, and uh, sort of the stuff you the, behind the scenes that we don't really get to see that goes, in, goes into actual on-ice product. And I think my working theory for it has been that he did also like uh, – I, I don't know how to phrase – like intellectually developed a bit as well. And it makes sense considering that he's at that age. I'm sure there was a lot of like – 
watching tape and what was going wrong. And for him, the question has never been how fast he can go because we still see it now. I mean, that one goal he scored um, against Winnipeg where he, like, starts off in his own zone, gets right. the puck, and then all of a sudden, like, two freeze frames later, he's by himself scoring a goal. And it's like, how the heck did he get from point A to point B that fast? And he still has that breakaway speed. But I think for him... What I've noticed is it seems like he realized, and I'm not sure how much of this was his own doing, how much of it was coaching, like you don't always need to go 110%, especially in the offensive zone, because sometimes you're just getting yourself out of position if you're just constantly, if you have one move and right. it's put your head down and go to the net as fast as you can. And you know his patented move, I think, now has become that sort of like uh, stop short and transition move where he's going full speed and you can tell the defenders and the goalie are both like, oh crap, like we better buckle in here. And he kind of puts them on their heels and then he just stops. And then all of a sudden he waits for a trailer to come to the offensive zone or hits them with a pass. And right. just sort of that like um, variation that he's tossed into his game and sort of knowing when to push all the right buttons, I think, is sort of what I've noticed with him in terms of that natural progression. Right. Uh, recently and to add to that i mean the other thing he does too is whenever he gets the puck and makes that stopping move he does something with his hands with his wrists that just it's almost like enough eye candy to use that term to where right you're paying attention to it and then yes he gets that trailer and so when you look at how that line started off so well last year peter McNabb, the analyst for the avalanche on altitude made this really good point and he's like the thing that makes that line so good there's there's two aspects the first is you have a natural center with a natural left winger and a natural right winger you're not trying to fit a center into a winger spot right. so on and so forth and the second thing is they played these one two combinations so well where like and we saw this quite a bit early on where you would have you know Landeskog in the corner and McKinnon not far away to play you know a kind of supporting role and then you'd have Miko Ronson and you know left alone to take shots here there and everywhere but then I think as more teams kind of started figuring that out it then became not only try to incorporate that but play their strengths and with Landeskog I mean he's developed into being a player who once he gets to the net front with his strength like he can get opportunities Ronson and can use his size to hold on to the puck to where he can take a hit at the last minute yeah. but he can get the puck off quick enough to where whoever he passes it to has space and with McKinnon it's about how he uses his time mm. how he uses is a space but not only that but you think about what he was in the queue and everybody talked about the scoring ability i mean people talked about the distributing some yeah whereas if you look at it now and he's become a much stronger distributor yeah. and facilitator yep. of the puck and so when you look at all those different components that's what's kind of led to him being this more complete player and even this year the thing you've seen from him that you may not have seen much of in previous years is his forechecking and back checking on the defensive end it seems like there's a greater commitment to that yeah I I think that is such an astute point in terms of the the playmaking because he has so much attention on him with that speed. It's like everyone it's just human nature, even as a well trained athlete where you're like focusing on your positioning, it's like how can you not help but have your eyes gravitate right. towards this just like freak of nature that is just storming down the ice and so if everyone is looking at him, that likely means that someone on his own team is wide open or getting lost in coverage. And if he's able to actually get them to puck, all of a sudden that opens so many avenues for the Avalanche to score. Well, and not only that, but it's almost the hilarity of you're allowing Gabriel Landeskog to get open. The hilarity of you're allowing Miko Rontanen yeah. to have space, knowing that if one of those two has the puck, it's that thought in the back of your mind of, so what do you do? Do you try to pressure one of them knowing that, hey, 29 and 96 are lurking? Or if it's Ronson and it's 29 and 92. And so, again, like that's just really the thing is like they have found a way to not only be dangerous together, but they're dangerous in their own separate way. And that's what's so interesting about Gabriel Landeskog once he returns is 
you think about last season, and if he doesn't get hurt, he's on pace for a 41-goal season. Yep. And just to see his maturation as a scorer, I mean, just looking at different charts and graphs, you know, early on in his career, he was someone who he tried to be more spread out mm-hmm. in kind of the low slot as well as just, you know, the face-off circle. But last year, he really stuck to one zone. So it was really more or less like the left-hand side where a higher concentration of his shots were coming from. Yep. But not only that, but the net front, which the interesting part about that is that's one of the areas the Avalanche struggled with with in 2017-18, yet you look at Landeskog, it's where they've improved, and you look at him now, I mean, Calvert does it, Landeskog when healthy does it, Jonas Donskoy, for a story we just did, he was even like, in San Jose, I watched Joe Pavelski do this in practice, and I was like, I need to be better, and so in fact, he took this past summer, and he watched every goal of his career, and it was like, I don't get to the net front enough, so you're starting to see more of that component really sort of drive this team into getting goals. Well, I think that, I think that adjustment from Landeskog is... is um is so key because when you have three guys like McKinnon, Ranton, and Landis Cog, like there's going to have to be sacrifices that are made, right? It's just like anything. It's like if you're the main guy on a team and you're playing with two complementary players, you know, we can run the offense more through you. But whereas in this case, like Landis Cog is never going to be as flashy per se as Ranton or McKinnon. So he does a lot of this like dirty work around the net. Exactly. And, and that adjustment of like, I remember when he came into the league, he was a high volume shooter where like he would constantly put the puck on net from all different areas of the ice. And now, like, he's sort of, um, I'm sure it's a conscious effort, like, refined his game to the sense where he's like, I'm not going to have as many opportunities, so i got to have to make them more count more. So I'm going to go to these areas and kind of be there when opportunities open up for me. And it's, it's just been interesting to see that progression from him. He's still such a young guy, too, but he's been in our lives for so long now that it feels like he's this, like, old, grizzled, like, cagey <laughs> veteran that is, like, on his last legs, and he's, like, trying to finally win a chip. And it's like, no, he's still, like, in his prime. It's yeah, just, he's just 26. How, like, he turned 27 later this month. like, changes so much based on, like, just, like, how long he's been in our lives. Well, that and, like, I mean, kind of mixing metaphors here, but, like, to hear you talk about his kind of progression, it almost makes me think a little bit about Draymond Green. Mm, you know, when Draymond yeah. Green first came into the NBA – at Michigan State, I mean, he was a guy who led the team in scoring. And then when he came to the NBA, and then, of course, you know, you start changing things with Steve Kerr, people thought there's no way someone who's six foot seven could actually be this good center. But then the thing you saw was not only could he get you eight, nine, ten rebounds a game, but he could distribute. And he became this point forward that really took pressure off Steph Curry, which allowed Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and eventually Kevin Durant to get open. And it was just such a change in his game. And with Landeskog, it's kind of the same thing. Thing where he's someone that can definitely shoot from different angles and he has the ability to do it. But at the same time, if you're him, you have to realize if I have the puck, what's the best use of it? Is it to have it with McKinnon so he can create more? Is it to have it with Miko Rontanen so he can do the same? And by and the byproduct of that being, yep. it allows Landeskog to get to the net front or wherever else to get these sort of scoring opportunities. No, that that is the right analogy. I was actually, when I was talking about it, I was like, I, I won't go there just because like, I know people hate sometimes when I talk constantly about basketball on the show, although I am an NBA <laughs> fan myself. But it's like, it reminds me of like when like, Bosch, Wade, and LeBron initially came together, and it's like, oh, one of them's gonna have to sacrifice. They can't have all the same shots they were getting before. And it was Chris Bosch, and he kind of developed this like corner three that they added to this game. And I think that's similar here too, where it's like Landis Gog kind of like needs to like fade back a bit into the background and, and develop his game into something else and kind of be there to fill the void for those other two guys. And so watching that marriage and sort of that that relationship of those three guys all making each other better and figuring out where they're going to be on the ice is, is, is such a fascinating storyline. Well, it is, especially when like, I hope this doesn't get too off topic, but you look at the Boston comparable with Pasternak, you know, yep. Marshawn and Bergeron, because with Bergeron, the thought's always been he's such a gifted two-way player that you thought, okay, if he could ever get 
more offense into his game? Like, would that give maybe the public at large a great appreciation yeah. for what he does? And with Marshawn, like, it's kind of wild to think that his profile went from being sort of this kind of annoying agitator who had a little bit of offense to now you look at him and like, no, he's one of the most dangerous scorers in the league. Yeah, like purely one of the most skilled guys. Yeah, and, and Pasternak, same thing. Yeah. I mean, like, everybody talks about, you know, his ability to score and, and where he can do it, but his ability to distribute as well is also dynamic. And so it seems like with those three, it became less about who has to sacrifice, but more in a sense of like, okay, whose strengths do you amplify and where do you amplify them and how do you amplify them? Whereas if with Colorado, it became an understanding of there's a lot of strengths here, but at what moment is the right strength for this team to score goals? And that's really been the whole interesting thing about the evolution of both those lines because everybody always says, look, one of those two is considered to be the best line in hockey. And while they're both effective, it's just they've been able to do it in such a different way. But that's the the thing in hockey. It's not ever, ever as simple as like, let's just put the three best players on this team together because sometimes like you know you can have clashing uh playing styles or sort of like a uh, point of diminishing returns where it's like if two guys right. do the exact same thing well and they both want to be in the same area of the ice like it's not necessarily going to work and maybe you want to split those guys up so for these guys to all at such a young age especially as well um kind of morph their games into what's going to work best for the guys around them is really impressive and and sort of you see that in the results in terms of I guess they were put together like right after the Matt Duchesne trade or something like yes. that. And, and, you know, their results pretty much since then are, are right up there, especially in terms of maybe not shot share, but in terms of the goals, like they've just been absolutely destroying teams since those three guys got united. Well, and not only just, I mean, have they been able to do that, but I mean, I know we'll get into this a little bit more, but we think about those three, but then the other component of all this is you look at what's on the back end. And so you've gone from a defense that initially the, your primary options were that of Eric Johnson and Tyson Berry. Oh, right. So yeah, Eric Johnson's still there, but the primary puck mover in his pairing is Samuel Girard, mm-hmm. which gives him another element. Yep. And then you have Kale McCarr as well, which also gives him another element. And that's just it. It's like we've heard Jared Bednar speak, especially lately, about this being such a five-man game and the sense of creating offense. And that's just it. As for as talented as those three are, like when they get defensive support with these high-low passes or with other you know dy- dynamics they're able to use, like they really are able to sort of control the tempo and so again like let's look at Edmonton last night with a lot of those goals I mean the thing is like it's so easy to say how did they score all those goals Connor McDavid but the thing is it's like it's the puck movement right and so there was one goal I want to say it might have been yeah it was the goal McDavid had the hat trick I mean they were on the left side of the ice and it was just pass 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 like high low high low high low but yet you've got Connor McDavid by himself in an ocean of space and it's just then you slide the puck over to him and all he needs to take is two steps and boom yep. it's a wrist shot and it goes in and it's just it just speaks to the importance of when you have everybody who can contribute it's just going to lead to better opportunities and I think that's something you could see with that first line when everybody gets healthy which right now that's kind of the big question is when does everyone get healthy true there was that one goal that McDavid scored last night it was I think it was the second one maybe or maybe we were talking or, about the same one were, he, yeah because there were four men on the blue line yeah he just he like sped past Matt Nieto and then yeah. two uh skated back and they were in. like they were you could tell they were like it was like this like wind came and they were just like so scared of getting beaten uh out wide that they like took 
three steps back further than they probably should have. And then McDavid just like settled into this crease in the middle of the ice and just whipped it past the goal. Well, yeah, because that's just it. It's like yeah. the coverage was there. Right. But at the same time, like even though the coverage is there, how much of that coverage is really like structured and concrete? Because it's one thing to know, hey, we're going to force you to go a certain area. But with him, given that he just blew by Matt Nieto, who has speed in his own right, if you're the defense, you're just like, well, what do you do? Is it <laughs> like you're just sitting there thinking, like, is it better just to give up the middle? And, you know, people say, hey, look, Adam Werner was a guy who was just in the AHL. But on one hand, Adam Werner had a great night against Patrick Laine. So not that, you know, we're saying, I mean, look, Laine is a great player, but Connor right. McDavid is Connor McDavid. Yep. So, I mean, again, just what is it? Is it just, hey, hey, this is Connor McDavid. Welcome to the NHL. Was it something else? But either way, it's just. Last night was an example of no matter what you try to do, give him space, don't give him space, whatever. He's going to find an answer. You know what those guys are thinking? Please don't wind up on a highlight reel. Please don't wind up on a highlight reel. <laughs> I don't know if like, I go that far. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think that's about it I had uh, that I have on McKinnon at least. Um, like we got into sort of his career arc and sort of how he's developed. Uh, I guess we could transition. Is there anything else, any other sort of things on McKinnon that, that you find interesting or, or that like – um, you, just from covering them that they, they, you've uh, kind of gleaned over the years? Like, I, don't, I don't Sure. I mean, I would say the interesting thing about McKinnon is just watching the way he works within the leadership construct of that team. Mm-hmm. And so the way Jared Bednar described it was Landis Cog's the captain. And, I mean, he does everything that you want with a captain. I mean, he's the figurehead. He's the statesman. He has this sort of regality to him. And Eric Johnson is there more in this kind of veteran purpose who he can play that supporting role. But they're like, McKinnon's the one who's like, he's. it's his job to kind of play like this emotional leader. And like, he's the one who will get up and, and try to cheer people go, like cheer people on mm-hmm. and try to get them going. And so something that was so telling is, you know, the Avalanche released a clip of Adam Werner getting his first shutout. And so the whole room was quiet and McKinnon was the one who presented him with this puck and gave him this speech. And I think that's something that when you look at him is not necessarily often discussed. It's just kind of the role he plays, you know, as a leader. And with Gabriel Landeskog being out, I mean, yes, you still have Eric Johnson, but Pierre Edward Belmar has been captain, has been an assistant captain. Well, yeah, excuse me, an alternate captain. Right. And then of course he gets injured. Then Matt Calvert, now it's back to Belmere. But right. to see the way McKinnon has sort of grown into that role is been something interesting to see. Mm. All right, let's take a quick break to hear from a sponsor and then we're going to pick up this conversation. Sponsoring today's episode of the Hockey PDO Cast is Seeky. Here at the PDO Cast, one thing we value above all else is efficiency. It's finding hidden value, it's getting ahead of the market and getting a leg up on the competition. And that's exactly what SeatGeek's doing because they're going to save you time, money, and effort. And there's no more efficient way to get tickets to events, whether that be sports concerts, theater, you name it. What SeatGeek does is they scour the web for you. They pull all the tickets that are available for any given event into one place. They rate each of those tickets that are available on a deal on a scale of 1 to 10. And then they finally display them on an interactive seat map, breaking down all the full details for you, indicating which seats are good deals with green dots and which ones are overpriced with red dots. Plus, every purchase with SeatGeek is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets with confidence knowing that what you're paying for is what you're going to get. I've got the SeatGeek app on my phone, and I've found time and time again that it's by far the fastest and easiest way to find tickets. I've used it to get tickets to hockey games, uh, to basketball, to football, to concerts, you name it, they've got it. So if you're interested in going to an event, 
whatever it may be. I understand this is a hockey podcast and that's probably what you're leaning towards. But if you've got other interests, uh, good on you. And SeatGeek's probably going to help facilitate that for you. So go check them out. And I know a lot of you have already, but if for whatever reason, you're one of the still people that are being kind of left behind and wondering whether you should give it a shot or whether it's even worth your time, here's one final offer to spruce things up for you. SeatGeek is going to give you $10 off your first purchase with them just for listening to today's episode of Hockey PDOcast. All you need to do is let them know that we sent you by using our promo code, which is PDO. So download the SeatGeek app today and use promo code PDO for $10 off your first purchase. That's promo code PDO for $10 off your first purchase. Now let's get back to the show. So you were mentioning there with Bednar talking about like uh, five man units and sort of we don't think about hockey in that way because you think you break it up into more so like forward lines and defense pairs and we never really think about like how these five guys interchange and how they play together. One of my favorite things watching uh, the Avalanche, especially in the postseason, and I can see why Bednar would be more reluctant to do this throughout the grind of an 82 game season because you you don't want to show your best cards, but you also are kind of it's a marathon and you're sort of pacing yourself and we've seen it when they've been down or when they've been uh trying to hunt for a goal can i take a guess what you're gonna say the gerard mccarr line oh my god yeah (laughs) i mean like i need i need uh i need some like i i try to watch as many of the abs games live as i can because they have so many players that are um you know just really fun to watch sure you know on like a thursday night when there's like eight different games on at once or whatever sometimes you're bouncing around and you're not watching i need like need some sort of like a game pack game like a red zone version of like <laughs> these two guys are out on the ice they're about to take an offensive zone draw and i could just like quickly go on it because watching the interplay between those guys like it, they just do stuff where we're so used to like all right this is the blue line this is like where defensemen typically hover around and maybe they can walk the blue line and i know mccarr does that very well but you're sort of like stuck in this zone don't go past it because you're gonna get become, get out of position and it's like no these guys are just like redefining what modern hockey looks like where there's an open space down the right circle one of them goes down there and then the other guy fills the fills the void that he left behind and they're just kind of like it's just like rhythmic action where they're just moving back and forth and they're not trying to force anything. They're just basically taking whatever the defense gives them and just watching those two guys play off of each other in the offensive zone is like one of my favorites. Well, and I think the sequence everybody looks at, Dimitri, is the one against San Jose mm-hmm. where they're just interchanging and yep. interluding. And the thing about watching that is there's a couple that hit you. The first is how are they making this look so seamless? Right. The second one of them was literally just taking a philosophy class not that long ago. Yeah. And he's out here with the confidence to do this against the San Jose Sharks. But then the other thing that you look at with those two is this. I mean, as much as we just talked about the McKinnon line, like when they're doing that, you kind of forget, like, wait, they could pass this to McKinnon. Yeah. Landis got right. Because you're just focused on the two of them. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and it's one of those things where Bednar has kind of used it more situationally, like you said. Like if it's one of those things where he feels they need a jolt they will go to those pairings, that pairing of yeah. Kale McCarr and Samuel Gerrard. And we recently had a story about Kale McCarr and just kind of how the first 15 games, he even said, hey, at UMass, it was kind of a buffer he needed. And you look at the way he's been playing lately, and I mean, look, right now it's safe to say that he leads the Calder conversation. Yes. And, you know, talking to Sam Gerrard, you know, Gerrard was saying that whenever they are paired together, there's already this natural understanding that, like, okay, if he needs to be the one who jumps into attack, McCarr has no problem hanging back and vice versa. And what's even more intriguing is they're two of the more quiet personalities on the team. And so I got a chance to speak with Mark Delgaizo, who was McCarr's defensive partner at UMass last year. And it was funny because his first two years, well, it's only two years, he only had two defensive partners, Mario right. Ferraro in year one. 
and Delgado in year two already through we're about to go into game 20 as of hmm. Saturday. He's had Nikita Zadorov, Ian Cole, he's Ryan Graves, and then let's say three and a half with Gerard whenever right. the time you know meets it. Yeah. And so talking to Delgado, who's also pretty quiet, he was saying with him and McCarr, like they would communicate when need be, but they would give each other this look, and it started with Kale in the sense of if they needed to do something – all it took was this one look and they were there. So I don't know if necessarily if Samuel Gerard and Kale McCarr at that point mm-hmm. yet, but it's one of those things where it's just like when they're on the ice, they just seem to understand, Hey, when it's your turn to go, I'll stay here. Vice versa. And it's just, it's interesting to, because people have asked, well, why doesn't Bednar play that combination more? Cause like, yes, they can both play that defensive role. But the thing I keep coming back to is it's that goal of Vander Kane scored. So, right. You know, you're seeing Kale McCarr go up against Evander Kane, who Evander Kane's 6'2", 210, with a mortgage. And, mm-hmm. and that's a way of saying, yep. like, he has this kind of brute strength that a guy like McCarr, while he's getting stronger, you need to have someone bigger right. out there. And so, again, maybe we see them more as a pairing in the coming years. But for now, it's still just the idea of, like, you have one one place – one another, which it's a good setup to have. Well, I, I mean, I listen, they've shown that they can play together, and so I, I'm perfectly okay, especially though the regular season, you sprinkle them in here and there strategically, offensive zone draws, if you're down a goal and you're looking to create instant offense, but uh, it makes sense that Bednar, at least for like the 82 games, he'd want you know, it's funny when you're listing those guys as common partners from Makara. I was like, oh, like it seems like a like kind of like a prototype of a guy that they prefer, which is a bit more sort of traditional stay-at-home physical defenseman that can handle some of that heavy lifting in his own zone and kind of free up Makara to uh, maybe roam a bit more offensively. And so it makes sense in terms of uh, what they're trying to accomplish that they prefer that. But I do think like that's what makes this team so interesting. We'll talk about future moves and how they can upgrade their team as well. But just this idea that come a playoff series if push does come to shove, he does have this kind of like extra card to play in just unleashing these two guys together that I think gives this team a higher ceiling than what they're going through regularly through this 82 game grind. Well, I mean, it does. And I think that's really kind of the, kind of the, the fascinating complex thing about this team, Dimitri is you see the pieces and you look at it and you're like, okay, this is why Vegas thinks this team has the potential to go really far into Western Conference, maybe even make it to the Stanley Cup final. But again, there's still so many games. Right. No one knows what's going to happen. But I think the the theme with this team has been questionably proven in the sense of there are aspects of it that were proven, but you still want to see more. Because for as well as Kale McCarr did in 10 playoff games, I mean, he's yet to go through the full 82 because, right. I mean, playing at UMass, he's playing on weekends and he has the week to recover, lift, get stronger, practice refine things whereas if now it's so much go 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 and then on optional skates it's like do you want to take that time to you know maybe work on a few things or do you want to use that time to rest and maybe get away from things and so that's just it is like that's part of like what goes into it but just to know that they have all these different things they can do that's what's so interesting because I mean, like you look at last year's roster versus this year's roster. This year's roster is much more deep. It's much it's deeper, but yep. not only that, but it's a lot more dynamic and a lot more complete. And I will say, Makar has. I mean, he came into the season with like unrealistic expectations. I think just because of what he showed us in the postseason, well, absolutely. everyone's like, all right, yeah, he's gonna come in and, and he's gonna be like amazing. And he certainly had flashes, but I think like you know he started off a bit slower than I think people were expecting and. um you know, the Avs are, are taking it slow with him as well. There's no need to just, like, be like, okay, this guy's going to play 25 minutes a night for us every night now. Like, they're they're kind of viewing the big picture with him and with this team. And so now with these injuries, it was like, okay, who's going to step up offensively? And, you know, Eunice Donskoy certainly has playing with McKinnon on the top line, and he had a hat trick, and he's 
definitely creating more offensively than I think even the biggest Eunice Donskoy fans expected him to early on, just kind of out of necessity. But Makar has really, I think, been the guy that kind of stepped up and is creating much more and sort of looks like he's finally like locked in in, in that like you know, he's really feeling himself on some of these sequences sure. where it's like, I think, especially that goal against Winnipeg where it's like, and this is what makes him so special, it's like, he could shoot the puck, but instead he waits to get to a better area on the ice to finally get rid of it, and he winds up scoring as opposed to just firing it into the goalie's crest or potentially shooting it right into a shot blocker's shin pads, and we see that so much with, you know, less skilled, but maybe less empowered defensemen as well, too, where it's like, they don't want to hold on to the puck for an extra second because it might lead to a turnover and all of a sudden they're skating back trying to break up a two-on-one odd man rush. For him, he's so comfortable in his own skin and with his skill set that like he's holding it on he's holding on to the puck. He's walking the blue line. He's waiting till shooting lanes open up and it's been really fun to watch. Like it's it's such a rare thing from a young defenseman to do that. Although I guess in 2019, uh, you know, we're seeing it more and more like Quinn Hughes, for example, in the Calder race. Sure. There's, there's younger defensemen at an earlier age are being given the opportunity to show off those skills. It used to be like, you have to like pay your dues and prove it before you can play this type of flashy yeah, offensive and, game. Yeah, exactly. Like, no, let's embrace what you do your best. And, and so I guess, you know, for Makar, for, for other defensemen like him and for us as fans, like it's a great spot to be in because we can just appreciate these guys' skill sets. Well, and hearing you say that makes me think about something Greg Carville said uh, he said it a few times where he's like, you know, with Kale, he's like, Kale could have had more goals last year. But he's like, the thing is, is Kale would hold on for the perfect shot. And he's like, that's something he's not going to be able to do at the NHL level. And of course, he says that. And like 24 hours later, <laughs> he has this goal against Winnipeg. Yeah. And it's like, OK, the real the reality is that's not going to happen all the time. Right. But the thing is, it's just like you have to respect his speed because like having this conversation with Peter McNabb in the playoffs you know, we think back to his first game and there was that sequence where he was in Colorado's end and he just started going in the San Jose zone and like San Jose just kind of sort of backed off. And mm-hmm. I just remember asking Peter, like, why not? Like, you know, why do you back off? And he's like, well, here's the thing. A guy like that has so much speed that the fear is if you try to be even the slightest, show the slightest bit of aggression, he's going to burn you. Mm-hmm. And so you have to give him right. that sort of respect. And I think that's just it. Is the closer he gets on net, you know if you just make one move, you're going to give him open space. And so, yes, he could shoot right there, or he could decide maybe I try to take advantage of more and more and more. And maybe that leads to him getting the best shot, or maybe it's him creating the best shot for someone else. And, like, and again, that's just the other thing is just we're saying that, and we're also realizing he's not played a full season yet. Yeah. Yeah, that's the scary thing. I, I, I love that patience. I know sometimes, uh, you know, hockey crowds, it can be like, shoot. Like, they're just like, they want something to happen and they <laughs> right. get frustrated. And then when, if you have a good look at the net and then you pass it up for something better and it doesn't wind up materializing, you're like, oh, you know, you need to you need to put that puck on net. You need to make the goalie stop it. And it's like, I, I like, especially from defensemen, like, there's no need to force a low percentage shot. Like, wait for something better to happen. Especially, like, we talk so much, like, puck possession is important you want to you don't just want to just give the way of the puck willingly and it's like if you're just taking a low percentage shot that has no real shot of going in unless something miraculous happens you're basically that's what you're doing you're just giving the puck away for no reason so why not if you're confident in yourself and you have the skills to actually back it up why not keep it and wait for something better to happen well especially when you look at the construct of Colorado's system because i mean their whole thing is using youth and speed and just this two-way ability to just make everything work and so if you're jared bednar 
you want Kale McCarr to do these things because you figure the longer you keep it in your zone, the more you're going to tire someone out, which, yep. I mean, that's every kind of coach's philosophy right. is to hold on yeah, to the puck Let's keep the puck forever. as far away from our net as we can. But at the same time, when you have that sort of speed, so like, let's say it's that combination where you have McCarr, Gerard, you've got Ronton and Landeskog and McKinnon, yep. and they're able to hold the puck. You know those are five players that they're really good at puck possession. They're good at moving with the puck. More importantly, they're great at moving without the puck. Yep. But not only that, but like they can use their individual speed in certain ways and in certain areas that really puts the defense in a compromising position. And that's just it. It's like if you can make that work for you and get that possession and just wear people out, I mean, it allows you to have this advantage. And given that – Right now, let's say those five guys are on the ice, and Landeskog's the oldest at 26. Right. Like, that's telling, because not only do you have that youth, but then you're giving them that experience. So in a year, two, three years' time, like they've become so natural at it. Like They know what they're doing with it, a greater amount of confidence. Yeah. I mean, it's really fun to watch. And, and you know, as we spin this forward and we sort of – like, I have a note here. I, I really want to get into this idea of, like, how this team uh, is trending forward in terms of – what are the areas for improvement? Where, what are the means that they can get there? And what I'm so fascinated about by them is, one, I, I assume right now they're viewing Ranton and Landeskog coming back as sort of like uh, acquisitions when they come back because they're yes. like, oh, like you're, we're adding these guys to our team. And I know teams like to frame it like that, but there's also the element of I think they're banking on a lot of these young guys getting better and getting more confident, getting more comfortable with the team as well. And there's the fact that and this is why I wanted to start the conversation with Joe Sackick and we're sort of pulling a full circle sure. now. Like this team has been put together in such a thoughtful kind of forward thinking manner where they've kept flexibility both financially in terms of not saddling themselves with these uh, sort of albatross anchor type contracts where it's like kind of really limits what you can do. But they also drafted really well. I thought they won the draft last year when they got Alex Newhook and, and, and Bowen Byram. And so all of a sudden now, you know, they have a treasure chest full of like uh, draft capital and, and, and young prospects they've established. They have the financial resources and they have a young team. So I guess the question is like, what's the timeline for this team and how are they viewing it from the perspective of what's our window to really go all in? Because we see time and time again that while it's nice to say, okay, this is a young team. All these guys are going to get better. They're in their early to mid twenties. Look at what just happened with Winnipeg, for example, where I think two years ago, you'd be like, let's be patient. This team is going to be a contender for well, the next five years. Can I stop you there with yeah. Winnipeg? And I know this is kind of again mixing metaphors, but like you looked at how good Winnipeg was and you were almost like, this feels like the kind of team, like if you were playing NHL or 2K, right. like you rigged the system to go get. Yeah, it's like, like, how like, do they get all cause, of cause, Yeah, because you're just sitting there looking and you're like, Okay, I remember when they drafted Shifley and people thought, oh, like they reached too high. And you look at him and it's like, no, they have a six foot three, two way center who, like, with the right cast can get that offensive production. Yep. And then you have Wheeler and you have Line A and Connor and, and, and you add these other guys like, you know, Brian Little yep. and then, you know, Bufflin. And then you look at what happens in that and Hellebuck. Yep. And you're just like, and Truba too, you're just sitting there going, like, where is this coming from? Yep. And you look at them now and it's just like, God, that window open and it's shut, and no one knows when it's going to open again. Yep. But what's interesting to me is I think, first off, I think the easiest thing to do in the NHL is to tear it down. Like, I think everyone can probably do that when you realize it's like, okay, it's time to like think about the future, trade away assets, you sort of rebuild. Obviously, you need to nail those picks, but in terms of like that area of your uh, franchise art, right. that's probably the easiest thing to do. I think 
when you start getting these young pieces in place and then you eventually need to start paying them as well, it certainly helps that they don't have to cross that bridge with McKinnon for at least a couple more years. They got Ranton and signed this summer. They got Sam Gerrard signed. So, you know, they have a lot of these guys, at least like foundational key pieces locked exactly. up for now. But we see time and time again that like things happen very quickly in terms of like you make one bad move, you uh, – you sign one guy to a bit more than he's worth or something that's injured. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, this room for us to, to maneuver with and get better all of a sudden shrunk right before our eyes. Exactly. And so I think just like with everything in life, timing is so key. And in this case, I do think that question of like, when do you push all in? When do you go for it? When do you swing for the fences? It's never too early to ask that question because whether it's Winnipeg, whether it's Toronto now, like if you would have thought about it two years ago, the first time yeah. you were in the playoffs, you'd be like, this team's going to win cups. This team's going to be set for life. And now it's like, oh my God, what's wrong with this team? They don't have any more. You can arguably throw Nashville in that same discussion. Yeah, there's any number of teams like this, um, you know, for every Chicago or whatever that has this extended cup run, there's so many other examples of teams that look like they were going to get there. They miss it by one year and then all of a sudden they're back to square one, basically. So I guess that's what I'm interested in with this Colorado sure. team where they have so much of that flexibility right now and they can sort of choose when to press those buttons. I guess it's a matter of like if the opportunity presents itself. I'm sure Joe Sackick has no issues with being aggressive, but they don't necessarily need to force it either unless something does materialize. Well, the thing is, in terms of when their window is, their thought is the window starts now. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at what they did in the postseason, everybody goes, okay, if Gabe Landeskog's skate isn't where it is, maybe this is a team in the final against the Blues. And who's to say what happens in the Western Conference final? I mean, you look at the Blues, and I think the thought was they were just so good with Bennington that, I mean, you just you never know. But there's always going to be that thought. Now, as far as how long it goes, it's interesting because – I had this conversation with Keith Jones a little bit ago. Well, really, it's been several months now. And he was saying the way Colorado's built, he's like, this reminds him of so much of Chicago and Pittsburgh in the sense of this is a seven to 10 year window. But of course, to make that happen, and you touched on it, is it's the financial component. Mm. And so people were talking about, you know, in the summer, like, why not go for the Panarins or the Anders Lee, like these big fishes? And it's like, but here's the thing like, this is a franchise that has to think about the long term because, like, like you said, Nathan McKinnon right now is making $6.3 million a year. We all know that when it comes time for him to hit the open market, he is going to get paid. Yes. And if you're them, you're already looking and going, Eric Johnson's contract is going to be off the books. Mm-hmm. That's $6 million you can throw towards Nathan McKinnon. Yep. So right now you've got like 12-3 that you can throw at him. Maybe that's not even a big enough number. Maybe the cap right. I mean, yeah, there's, but so, there's so many yeah. variables. Yeah. But the thing is, it's like they have to think that far down the right. road. They have to think about how not this coming summer, but the summer after. Gabriel Landeskog's a UFA. Mm-hmm. Philip Grubauer's a UFA. Kale McCarr. Because, again, he burned the first year of his ELC by playing in the postseason. Like, he's going to come up. Now, granted, you have more control because he's a group two with no Arbrights. But at the same time, you're looking at Sam Girard and you're looking at Miko Rontanen saying, we need to get a similar deal done for a guy like this in the sense of keeping him under control. And not only that, but doing it within the cap. And so when you look at what they're doing, what not only those cornerstone pieces, it's those supplementary pieces. Like, It's signing JT Confer to a you know a four year deal, but it's also seeing what happens with Andre Burakovsky because right now, Andre what was lost last night is Andre Burakovsky had two goals mm. and Andre Burakovsky is having a really really strong start. Yeah, he's making well, I think what three five right now I want to say right in that neighborhood. So it's like if he continues to do that, 
what does that look like? But then when you look at the future, not to get you know too far down the road, but like what happens with Byram? What mm-hmm. happens with Connor Timmons? Right. What happens with Newhook, Martin Kaut? Uh, I mean, Eustace Ananen. Like you're talking about some prospects, Nick Henry being another one, yep. that within three years could all be on this team. And it's kind of wild to think. But the thought is this defense someday could be Sam Gerrard, Kale McCarr, Bowen, Byram, and Connor Timmons. Right. Like that's how well this thing could go. But again, like – what if Joe Sackick has a chance to make a move? What will he do? Because, I mean, look, we've seen that whenever he gets involved with a trade, whether it's DeShane, whether it's the Kadri Berry trade, yeah. like when he swings for the fences, I mean, he swings for it. Yeah. And you mentioned some of those names and people wondering. I, I think they were. I think it was reported, right? They were in on Panarin. They, they, they were. They, they put they in a competitive were. offer. Same for Joe Pavelski. I know that for a fact. And I think both of them where ultimately the sticking point was the player wanted more term, right? It and was. Colorado, they're thinking ahead. They're like, we don't want to give you five years because we have so many more questions to answer in five years. We'll gladly, we have the room now. We'll give you as much money as you want for the next two, three years. We're not giving you more than that. Well, because, like, I mean, let's look at Rontanen because yeah. one of the things that, you know, we were able to find out at The Athletic was when Rontanen, you know, when this whole deal, when the whole thing was going on for a new contract, they actually approached him and his representatives in the spring with getting a short-term deal because for them, they were willing to try to do short-term so they knew what money they had available to where they could throw at, you know, again, a Panarin for another short-term deal. But once they realized they weren't going to be able to make it work with Panarin, yeah. then that focus returned to getting right. a long-term deal. And, like, that's just it. Is It's like they're sitting there and looking at it from a standpoint of, okay, you want to win next year and the year after – but you want to win three years, five years, seven years, and you don't want to mortgage your future because, I mean, again, it's one of those things where it's like it's like any great team. Like you keep winning and winning and winning. Right. But even when you look at those Avs teams when Sackick and Forsberg and Wah and they were just murdering people, every year everyone was like, how the hell did they swing Ray Bork? How yeah. did they swing Rob Blake? Right. And then you look five years later and it's like, why don't they have any first-round picks? Why don't they have any high prospects? Yep. And that's why. Yeah, no, for sure. But, you know, it's so funny that you mentioned how, uh, you know, when McKinnon's do, uh, they're going to like, they're basically viewing it as like, oh, we're going to allot this Eric Johnson money there. It, what I noticed looking at their cap was like, so Sam Gerard goes from being on an ELC to being $5 million per season next year. Basically, that entire gap there of like $4.2 million or whatever in the difference between those two salaries comes in Tyson Berry's money I, and Orpic Brooks Orpic's money coming off the books exactly. at the exact time. And, you know, I'm sure there's a little bit of luck there involved in terms of timing, but that's not there's that's not a coincidence. Like, that's something where, like, you're planning ahead in terms of, like, we need to make all these pieces fit and how is that all going to come together. And I love seeing stuff like that because sometimes with NHL teams, my biggest issue, and trust me, I don't, I don't pretend that I know more than all these GMs, but it's like sometimes it feels like you're very, like, fly by the seat of your pants or it's like, oh, there's something happening and we're just going to do this and we're going to do that. And then you're like, oh, crap, how did this problem happen? And it's like because you didn't think that it was going to happen two steps down the road. And with this, it's pretty clear they're, like, mapping out the future of, like, how are all of these pieces going to fit together and how can we make that work financially? Well, and the thing is, it's like getting a chance to talk to different people in the front office, the way it works is, you know, there's Joe Sackick and there's his lieutenants, Craig Billington and Chris McFarlane. And the thing Craig Billington was telling me for a story was 
all three of them talk every day about everything. So if there's something going on in the AHL, like Sackick and, and McFarland have input, if there's something going on with McFarland's side, like Billington and Sackick have input, it's all with the idea that Sackick has the final say. But like they sit there and they discuss and they talk, and it's not necessarily having meetings to have meetings, but it's like they want to get all these different perspectives. And, and for them, they think when they're able to do that, they're able to have a greater understanding of this is what they look like with the cap. This is what they look like on the on-ice product at the NHL. Here's what they look like at the AHL. And in with their development as well, which for them, I'll say me quiet, but development has been such a key thing because everybody looks at them and goes, wow, these first rounders. But if you take away Tyson Berry and Ryan O'Reilly, they've not really had players who've been successful beyond this first round yep. in several years, which is what makes them hitting on these guys like Nick Henry, like Eustace Anunin, um, Danila Zhiraloff, like that's what makes it so important. And I mean, to your point earlier when you said, hey, look, you thought Colorado won the draft with Newhook and Byram. There is a scout I spoke to who had said, look, they could have gone home after Friday and been done. Yeah. But they're like, you look at what they did in day two by getting Drew Hellison, by getting Matthew Steinberg, uh, Alex Bocage, like yeah. making all these moves, Trent Minor, another guy, like that's where Colorado's really going to have to make the difference is what they do from rounds two through seven, especially as these ELCs really start to play a role as you're paying these guys more and more money. Well, let's stay on brand with the PDO cast here. Let's give some love when we're talking about the front office and putting this all together with the Kroenke uh, sports analytics staff as well, who I, I know are doing some fine work with the Avalanche as well. So I think all of this, like, this is a smart organization. They know. Are you trying to get Eric Parnas some love right now? I'm, I, li- I Eric Parnas, uh, you know, been on the podcast many times back in the day before he is so day. damn brilliant one of the best guys in the industry i'm genuinely convinced he's not a human being he is a computer that that is suited as a human being yeah. almost like brainiac from right. superman yeah but really personable and nice too oh like, great guy he's a great guy yeah i love eric i know he's listening right now so but how's it going eric um <laughs> so is there anything else with this team that that we want to touch on it's like I didn't really want to get too far um, into the weeds with like their underlying numbers or sort of anything, just because it's like the, basically half of the sample size they haven't had two of their best players, right? right? Or and then, and then they've had Zaborov out of the lineup, they had Colin Wilson. Like this isn't a final finished product. Basically, for this team, they need to keep their head above water, stay in the playoff race, and get healthy, and then potentially make some upgrades around the trade deadline. And I think they're going to be this scary team that we all expected them to be. So that's what I'm looking for much more so than like worrying about why they're sort of middle of the pack in terms of shot share or so on and so forth. Cause really for them, like they're viewing it kind of down the line as opposed to like worrying about where they're at on game 19. Well, and that's just it is I think it's seeing once this team gets healthy, what it looks like, because I mean, when it's healthy, we saw eight, one and one, not saying that's always going to be the right. case over a 10 game sequence, but it is to say that it gives you an idea of what this team can be. Because I mean, last year it was a team that went through 36 fourth line uh, amalgamations this year with Calvert, Belmare, and Nieto, you're looking at that lineup and you're sitting here going, this could be one of the better, if not the one of the best fourth lines in the league. And so it's not only seeing what they do there, but it's also seeing what happens when they get to the trade deadline, just because, I mean, they really haven't been in contention to make these sort of, you know, mega, like, you stop what you're doing sort of moves. But this year, when you look at them and you look at the fact that they've got a lot of cap space yep. and they've got the assets, I mean, what they do on the trade deadline is going to be really fascinating. Well, also, we enter the season being like, all right, or I guess we entered – 
at the end of last season entered the offseason being like, this team needs to get secondary scoring because they relied so much on their first line. And they bring in Kadri, they bring in Donskoy, they bring in Burakovsky. And those guys have produced, but unfortunately, because the injuries now, right. they're like primary scorers instead of secondary scorers. And so once they get land this call, once they get Randon back, all of a sudden those guys can kind of slide into um, areas where they're better suited for their skill sets. And kind of like all of these chess pieces fall into place beyond just adding two great players. Well, it's not only that, but it's also just seeing like what else you can get from certain people. Cause like, I mean, before the injuries, I mean, JT Comfort was having a really strong season in the sense of his production, but like he's gone from center to wing back to center, you know, first line, second line, third line. I mean, it's kind of been hard for him to find a home when the thought was, you know, at the start of the season, down the middle, you're going to be McKinnon, Kadri, Comfort, Belmare, and he was finally going to take that Carl Soderberg role and run with it. So it's going to be interesting what happens there. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with Tyson Joseph, especially considering, you know, he's in the final year of his ELC. But again, like, it's not even just the secondary scoring at this point. It's just about where they get offensive production from everyone as a whole, because, like, everybody knows this team can score. They can distribute. They have a bunch of players who can do a lot of different things and do it in different ways. But again, it's just seeing what happens when this team gets healthy, because, I mean, right now, I mean, you look at it, um, let's see, Landeskog, Rontanen, Colin Wilson, Nikita Zadorov, Philip Grubauer. Uh, you lost Belmare for a little bit as well. I mean, those are players who play. I mean, th- okay, let's put it like this. That's literally a five in a goalie. Yeah. Like that's yeah. literally five in a goalie. Yeah. That's that's just it's huge. Yeah. No, I, and it adds up for sure. I mean, any team would be struggling with with uh, losing that much depth. But they're also like when you look at it, thinking ahead in terms of the playoffs, and we'll see because clearly last year, I think if you were thinking about their central division opponents, and then they sque- squeeze into the Pacific Division bracket and, and wind up playing Calgary and San Jose. But if you're thinking about like St. Louis, um, you know Dallas. Call uh, Dallas Nashville. I think those are kind of three of their biggest threats in the central, and they're such different teams, and they do such different things so well. So, like being deeper, being more well-rounded, being able to beat teams in more than one kind of just like we're going to jam a square peg into a round hole with Nathan McKinnon and a full head of steam. Having different ways to beat those teams is going to become even more invaluable when kind of the game really tightens up and you're playing a team like Dallas that just gives up so little defensively. Well, not only just that, but a team like St. Louis that everybody hits and they have this size. And like we saw a good example of that last night, Thursday in Edmonton, Cassian comes up with a couple big hits and mm. it's just like for as big as those McDavid's goals were, which they were big. I mean, to see Zach Cassian lay that kind of hit on Nathan McKinnon and then be able to control that fight with Matt Calvert, like that's what people are going to be looking at with this team. And so when you just think about Colorado, they do all these things well, but what's going to be fascinating is what happens when they play these teams that like to play a more physical brand? Sure, Zadorov, Calvert, Belmere can do that. But again, it's just going to be interesting to see how that works. Because, I mean, they I mean, they did it against Calgary, but at the same time, they were able to use their brand to really control. So in terms of just like to be a bit more physical, like a St. Louis, that's what's really going to be telling about kind of their growth and development. No, it will. It's funny you bring up Calgary because Calgary absolutely lost their minds after losing that series where they're like, oh, we need to get tougher. We need to. It's like, uh, I mean, I don't think adding Milan Lucic is the answer because the series I watched was a team just completely controlling the pace and skating laps around you. And it's so interesting that you come away from that series with that as a takeaway because I felt like as a viewer, I, I was watching a very different series. Well, it's interesting because, you know, when they played Calgary in a regular season, a lot of those games were decided by one goals. I think the most, you know, notable one being the abs being up four one going into I think it was what the 
third period or the second mm-hmm. period, and they lose like six four. And it was kind of this interesting thing where it's like, you know how good Calgary is, but it wasn't like the gulf between Calgary and Colorado, even though one is the one seed and the other is the eight, was really as large as people might have thought. But again, it's just you never know what's going on inside of an organization. Because, I mean, yeah, you look at Calgary and everybody kind of thought maybe the priority should be to get faster. But maybe, you know, they see something different where they think this could be the answer against a team like Colorado. You never know. I feel pretty confident saying adding Milan Lucic was not the uh, the difference between that. Hey, I try to stay neutral. That's a positive take. Look, I try to stay neutral as best as I can. Yeah. But, to, but to be serious, I mean, it will be interesting to see what certain teams do mm-hmm. at the deadline. Yes. And, and with Calgary, that's a team that you look at them and you're like, you see a lot of talent, you see a lot of promise and a lot of ability. It's just a matter of, again, how do they kind of capitalize on it at a time where, I mean, I know you could say this about really any point, but when you look at the West right now, Colorado's a thing. St. Louis is a thing. Dallas is a thing. Nashville's still a thing. I look at where we're at right now, which not saying the Canucks make the playoffs, but right. the, way way they start, be, yeah. I mean, the way they've started, I mean, that's going to be a thing for several years. I mean, I've talked to scouts who were like, that team in Vancouver is legit. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, I know every year people kind of joke, is this the year for the Coyotes? But when you watch them play, yeah. they've looked a lot better. And so, again, it's just it's trying to make all this work in a landscape that's really difficult. All right, man. Well, let's get out of here. We'll, uh, we'll we'll put a pin in the conversation here because I do think this is so far from a finished product, and I think uh, later on in the season we'll have more to talk about with with the Avalanche. I'm looking forward to that. Plug some plug some stuff. Where can people check out your work? Where they can find you? Don't want them to do that. So if you're, so if I've loved your work covering this team. Oh no, I I appreciate that. I I just try to be self deprecating. (laughs) Um, So if you want to melt your eyeballs and wonder why you even breathe oxygen in the morning, uh, go check out theAthletic.com. Go please read anybody else at the Athletic. I mean, read the cat as far as I'm concerned. Are there any other writers there? Like there's several like writers, a yeah, yeah, a little bit, yeah. um, yeah, no, but seriously, I mean, yeah, Joe, just go check out theathletic.com and you know check out our avalanche page and it'll all be right there and yeah, I guess that's really, I don't know, I'm like the worst at self promotion. What's your Twitter handle? Oh God, it's Ryan underscore S underscore Clark, yeah. where you will find the worst ideas ever pinned on the face of the earth. All right, well, I enjoy following you. People go check out Ryan Clark. Thanks for taking the time to. Oh God, thanks for having me. Let's, uh, let's do this again soon. Yeah, you got it. Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey pediocast.